0: shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. Well, keeping that passage in mind, I'd like to turn with you this evening to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, which was the last verse we looked at when we last looked briefly at Hebrews. Here it is chapter 2 and verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. We are of one nature with our Saviour. He is of one nature with us. He has a fully human nature. He condescended to us. He humbled himself from heaven to the dust. He calls himself the son of man, the child of Adam, the child of the earth, the child of the dust, of the dirt for us. No doubt the angels marveled at this bowing down, knowing that it was not a temporary matter. And he is the one who sanctifies us. We are sanctified in him by this unity with him. We have a a covenant bond in blood with him. And by that bond, by that unity, by that oneness with him, he sanctifies us. He cleanses us. He shares our guilt and our shame and brings us to honour. He shares our wounds. He bears our wounds for us and by them brings us health and strength. He shares our grief and our horror and he brings us consolation. Sweet consolation the world knows nothing of. He shares our curse and brings us blessing he shares our loneliness and he brings us fellowship with himself and he's not ashamed to call us brethren what a wonderful thing I wonder if you'd ever think of calling your dog your brother I very much doubt it only a strange person would do such a thing or your pet fish your brother or your sister well no doubt or a stone or a pillow in your bed or some other strange inanimate thing Did you ever call it your brother? I very much doubt it. But here is the Saviour, the King of Glory, calling us, creatures of the dust, brethren. Do you remember that wonderful cry we looked at in the Song of Solomon? Oh, that you were my brother. Well, he is. He is our brother. He is the intimate of our hearts, closer to us than many friends, closer to us than many of our closest. And he shares our hearts and he shares a deep knowledge of us well to prove this the writer to the Hebrews quotes three texts and here they are verse 12 saying I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church or the congregation will I sing praise unto thee well here is a quote from Psalm 22 which we looked at Uh, and uh, it, 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 it's here in verse 22, Psalm 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. And uh, he tells it out. The Hebrew suggests that it's um, a, a careful declaration. In fact, the Hebrew word is the one for writing out or telling out or numbering. And here is a detailed account, a thorough accounting of this matter. I will declare. Thy name unto my brethren, He shows us what God is really like. The world will belittle God and demean him, but Christ shows us what God's heart really is like. And he lovely he, in a lovely manner, he lays out the grace and the kindness in this dark and harrowing and dreadful experience where even the Son of God himself stoops, Uh, where even the son of God himself needs angels to strengthen him where even the son of God is said to be sorrowful unto death this experience of the cross he shows us God's name he shows us God's character he shows us what God is really like he shows us God's goodness that he's immensely good that God has a purpose even in these very dark and horrible experiences and more than that He comes through with a voice of triumph, and not mild triumph. Listen to those ringing words at the end of the psalm, and you'll remember what I'm talking about. Through that harrowing experience, he brings victory. Here is a public, open declaration, not to all, but to the assembly, to the church, of what has happened and how God has acted. And then in verse 13, he gives us a second quote, and it seems so simple. And again, I will put my trust in Him. Now, where does that come from in the Scriptures? Well, so many candidates could be Psalm 16, just a couple of a few Psalms before. Preserve me, O God, for in Thee I put my trust. Do I put my trust? Uh, there He is, right on the edge of death, in a very difficult experience, speaking of the resurrection and of corruption in the grave. But He says, "I will trust You there, too, Lord." Could be Psalm 18, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength, in whom I will trust. Again, violent storms that threaten almost certain death. And yet there he is found trusting in the Lord. But strangely, in the very Psalm that we've been looking at, which is very strongly messianic, there's, this expression is a little muted. First of all, he speaks about others trusting in God he said our fathers trusted in thee they trusted in thee and um, then again he says uh, it's almost a little shy to say I trust you he says "But I am a worm and no man I'm so demeaned, so humbled, so brought to the dust I dare not say that I trust you it's it's, uh, almost rather muted in a way uh, he reports it of others, but his actions in the psalm shout out his trust. Don't you agree? His uh, expressions in other places like verse 19 where he says, "Be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength haste thee to help me. He's laying hold of God and his promises by faith. So there's very clear he has the most strong trust. And again, verse 24, He hath not despised, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. It's very clear that the psalmist, right at the very edge of death itself, and in its midst, still (coughs) trusts in God. So there we are. Again, I will put my trust in him. And the third quote, is again behold i and the children which god hath given me and here is a citation of isaiah chapter 8 and it's worth reading so i will we may yet return to uh, psalm 22 uh, chapter 8 verse 13 sanctify the lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear let him be your dread Fear him, not those who can destroy the body and soul, body only, but him rather who can destroy both body and soul. And he shall be for a sanctuary. But for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and among many of them who don't believe, they shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, And I will wait upon the Lord that hides his face from the house of Jacob and I will look for him. He may hide, but I will search him out. And then he says this to the God who hides or about the God who hides. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Do you remember Isaiah's son, Mahashelo hashbaz that extraordinarily long name? (laughs) He shall rush to the spoil. Well, that very child, of course, was a sign to Ahaz of God's purpose. And it was a pretty dreadful and wonderful sign at that. Or remember Hosea and his three children, each with a special name to indicate and to signify God's purpose and God's plan. So it's interesting, very interesting, to the, that the writer of the Hebrews chooses again to choose this passage, close to, to death, close to falling, close to a time of great darkness, to indicate uh, something rather wonderful about the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Here he is not just the brother. He has become our Father. Do you remember how often he used to bless those who he'd healed by saying, daughter, thy faith has healed thee. Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Or son, as he says to the man lifted through the roof, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Do you remember how he used this fatherly language? Well, it's natural that he is indeed the everlasting father, though he be the son of God. He is the everlasting father to us. Our begetter. There are some very interesting names in the Old Testament. One of the bolder names is Abijah, and it means God is my father. It's often said by liberal scholars, God never calls himself the father in the Old Testament. We know that's nonsense. He often calls himself a father, but it certainly takes the back seat. It's not a prominent title. So it was a very bold title for that uh, king to call himself Abijah. God is, Yah is my father. But you know, there's an even bolder name, an even bolder name, and that is Ahijah, the prophet. It's it's extremely bold, amazingly bold. It says Yah, Yahweh, is my brother, is my brother. And yet it's true, of course. The Lord Jesus Christ is both our father and our brother. Extraordinary. God himself has lowered himself become part of our family to lift us up into his he's begotten us by the new birth he's the captain of our salvation and he is the one who has saved us with his own blood and verse 14 underscores that for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood he also likewise took part of the same we have a A communion with flesh and blood is the original we share it we have a fellowship in flesh and blood we derive our being from our parents and our great grandparents and our great 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 grandparents right back to the first parents we have a communion in flesh and blood and he has entered this communion he has chosen to partake of this communion uh, for a very special purpose he has become so lowly well to illustrate this perhaps in a rather blunt way I'd like to, you to think very briefly about that rather strange billionaire who um, has many quirks, Elon Musk I don't know if you know the name he chose for his youngest son it's a very odd name X-A-E-A-X-double-I <laughs> almost a robot's name or a machine's name and his latest daughter, or Y, she calls, he calls her. Very strange, very odd. And he does all sorts of strange experiments with animals where he implants things into their brains. Well, you can imagine a strange maverick, an eccentric like that, saying, I will become a monkey for a day. You can imagine him saying, I've shared my brain with a monkey. It's just the sort of thing he would do for on a whim as a strange thing. Or even become a cockroach for an hour or even say he'd become united with a slug for a moment. But we'd know it'd be a gimmick. We know it'd be a silly thing. We know it'd be something transient. And today he'd, tomorrow he'd have some new idea. But the extraordinary thing about the incarnation is it's permanent. It's eternal. Christ has lowered himself to our level, humbled himself to the dust with us forever. Forever. There's no going back. This is something He's embraced us, never to lose us. He has wed his own divine nature with our limited human nature in one person forever. That's the extraordinary thing here. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same. And verse 15, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He came to break us out of prison. He came to, to effect the great jailbreak, to shatter, shatter Pharaoh's power and lead out his captives. And what was the characteristic of that chain that binds us? What is the sort of hallmark of these slaves? What is the, the print on our foreheads, as it were, that all their lives... They should be subject to the bondage of the fear of death. Death holds a sort of pall over us. It it casts a shadow over us, the last enemy. So that through death there is a kind of mark upon us all in sin and in unbelief. Many will say to us these days, well I'm not afraid of death. um, And uh, uh, I'm not really concerned about what happens beyond death I'm just concerned about the pain of dying they'll say that but I have to say I find Satan's words to Job much more convincing skin for skin all that a man has he will give for his life Satan was a shrewd observer of humankind he still is and he knows there's often a tremendous battle against death when it comes to that matter and um, even those who do kill themselves uh, there's a kind of terror of what will follow death that restrains them and the strength the sting of death of course is sin and the strength of sin is the law well what is the key to that chain how is it that christ delivered us well for that we must turn back to verse 14 again that through death he might destroy you but had the power of death that is the devil Now we often think of death like uh, and we often think of Satan's position with respect to death like a goalkeeper trying to keep out all the balls from the opposition and then a particularly good scorer comes and shoots a ball straight past him and he can't catch it or perhaps like a rich man defending his house against intruders as though it was a house that he had ...protected and built up and and, uh, honoured very highly... ...or perhaps of a Ukrainian colonel... ...trying to protect his home against the Russian invaders. But I would suggest to you that in all of these cases... ...the illustration is flawed. Because Satan is not like a goalkeeper in his own goal. He's much more like the coach... ...running onto the pitch when the goalkeeper is defective... ...and doing something completely unlawful... ...completely improper himself trying to defend the goal against the foreign striker. He's not like a man defending his own house, he's like a burglar who's broken in, holds the rest of the family to ransom with a gun and then tries to keep the police from breaking into the house. He's a usurper, he's an intruder. He's not like a a Ukrainian colonel, he's like a Russian colonel who (coughs) obtains foreign territory and then plans to blow up the town hall, uh, which he's captured from the Ukrainians, rather than rend it back to its natural owners. He's a usurper. He didn't bring death into being. It doesn't belong to him. It was brought into being as a judgment. It's not his creation. It's not his possession. And nor was the law ever drawn up, of course, by the devil. No, friends. The only credit he has is the contribution of sin. That's all he can take grounds for. But in order to beat him, the Lord Jesus Christ has to enter into his lair. And he enters into flesh in order to enter the fray. Christ disarms him like David took off Goliath's head with his own sword, with the sword that he has usurped. By taking Satan's strength, that is the power of condemnation taken from the law and the power of the judgment, which is death. He overcomes him on his own territory and in his own fields. He takes back the Lord's lawful possession. That is both death and hell. And of course, us brings us back from guilt and shame by his own suffering. So through death, he destroys him that had the power of death. That is the devil. He casts out the usurper. Verse 16, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. Angels have fallen. Angels will fall, I believe. But there's no deliverance for them. There's no redemption for them. There's no hope for them. Our Saviour has not taken on their nature. There's no reconciliation for such rebels to God there's no redemption for them with his blood no friends but he has grasped and held and embraced the children of Abraham here it is verse 16 he took on him or he grasped or held the seed of Abraham not indeed all men but all that will come all that ask all that will turn what a marvellous thing our saviour has done And then verse 17. Well, brethren, there is a banquet in one verse. One verse here, and we have just a brief moment to look at it. In fact, there are two banquets in two consecutive verses. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. He is compassionate. He is patient. And he's discharged conscientiously to the very last. His absolute duty, and he's stuck to it, Strictly and truly. Doesn't our queen remind you of somebody? (laughs) The Lord Jesus Christ is yet more faithful, yet more diligent, yet more conscientious in all his life. And he's the only go-between. He's the exclusive mediator. He's the only door back to God. There's an absolute necessity that he became man, both holy man in body and soul and spirit And yet that he be sinless, human, with all the limits of our constraint, and yet perfect and holy and sinless. And as a great high priest, he prays and he represents, but above all else, he sacrifices, he propitiates, which means he makes God pleasing, he makes God propitious towards us. He offers up himself, the great sacrifice, the great high priest, his own merit, his own patience, his own service, perfect and flawless as it was, he becomes a living sacrifice. In a sense, even now, he is living for us, though the sacrifice is perfect and complete, even now, he lives for us. He bears our anger, he bore our, he bore our guilt, he presents his perfect merit and credit and record. For us, Just like Abigail appeased David's wrath, so our high priest propitiates God's justice, God's righteous justice against us. He's our only shield, our only shelter from the storm. He's the only refuge for the needy. Sometimes people talk very loosely about wanting to go to God as they are. To go to God on their own terms. Such dreadful and terrible ignorance is uh, unprecedented. Such a dreadful and foolish thing to say. It can't be imagined that you could say something more blind to your own condition. More blind to who God really is in his consuming brightness. What an ugly complacency such a statement that speaks. No, we must have a representative. We must have that Uh, go between for us in the saviour and then finally verse 18 for in that himself he himself hath suffered being tempted he is able to succor them that are tempted our saviour has suffered he has suffered for us the word is the same as the word for passion 40 days in the wilderness he fasted till he was famished He was hated and he knew hostility from his own family, from his own people, from his own race. He knew the intense malice of those Roman soldiers as they tortured him. He knew the scoffing and the scorning of the high priests and the high ones, the scribes. He even knew the terrible loneliness of, of desolation by his own heavenly father. And, of course, he knew the intense hatred and vitriol unseen to us of all hell's demons. He has suffered. He has suffered in ways we can scarcely begin to imagine. And he has been tempted in that suffering. He has known hunger and tiredness and thirst and frustration and desire. And even he has been tempted with doubt. If thou be the Son of God and desolation and despair, yet he remained flawless, perfect, holy, all the way through. What sunk Job, he has sustained. What frustrated and angered and irritated Moses that he's barred from the Promised Land, he has carried with patience and with long-suffering. What spoiled David and Solomon, he has rejected and refused, our friends. He can succor us. He knows us. He knows the depth of our temptation. He knows our hearts. He knows our needs. And he knows our terrible weaknesses. If you're going to go through a jungle, wouldn't you only trust somebody who'd been there a thousand times before and come back? If you're going to go through the desert, wouldn't you want to navigate a navigator who knew the landscape like the back of his hand, inside out? If you're going to fly through a storm with lots of lightning strikes and turbulence and perhaps a hurricane would you want a novice for a pilot of course not you'd want somebody who'd been up a thousand times and safely returned such a one is our savior such a one is our savior he knows how to succor us no one friends is more expert in grief and temptation than him he can succor us go to him ask him for help Ask him for wisdom, ask him for his strength, ask him for his own presence, look to him for his life and his power. He alone can succor us, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Amen.